Welcome to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network, a show that streams health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community. You can download all Kidney Talk shows from iTunes and find a variety of resources to help you navigate this illness at rsnhope.org. Please welcome your host, Lori Hartwell, who has lived with kidney disease since the age of two. Well, welcome to Kidney Talk. Today, we are going to be speaking about a very important subject. You need to know your treatment options. You need to know what path you want to take, and knowledge is power. So today, we're going to talk about your dialysis center social worker and how how they can help you work towards getting a kidney transplant. And today we have Anna Rutherford. She's an MSW and Senior Manager of Social Work Services at Fresenius Kidney Care. So welcome to the show, Anna. Thanks, Lori. Nice to be here. So, you know, kidney transplant is so important for people to know if it's an option for them. And there's some confusion because... You know, when people start dialysis, they, they have a dialysis social worker. Maybe you can explain a little bit about how the dialysis social worker can help the patient navigate to get a kidney transplant. Sure. There's so many ways that the social worker can help. Um, you know, it is an interdisciplinary team approach, so I don't want to just say the social workers can help. But absolutely, for the social workers in the dialysis clinics, if you think about it, they see their patients. Frequently, I mean, the patients that dialyze in center are there three days a week, home therapy at a minimum twice a month. Um, And so they are present and visible to those patients on a more frequent basis versus their transplant appointments that might not occur at that cadence. Um, The social workers in the dialysis clinics can help navigate questions about the wait list, Uh, local transplant center requirements, um, what it takes to get referred and what that means, or preparing the patient for, I don't necessarily want to use the word homework or assignments, but for things to expect during the evaluation process. And let's say that a patient isn't ready for transplant, a social worker can help them prepare and become ready for transplant by identifying and helping to address barriers. Um, helping them overcome barriers or establishing um, a good support contact for post-transplant care. Uh, there are all sorts of ways that social workers can help help the patient be more successful in the transplant journey if that's their optimal outcome that they choose. You know, one of the things that comes up a lot is, you know, and I, I know this from personal experience, you're diagnosed with kidney disease, you're now on dialysis, and the idea of going to one more doctor or making another appointment, sometimes you're just tired. And, you know, have you experienced that with your patients? Like, they're like, I just don't want to do nothing. I'm I'm in depressed, I'm in shock, denial, I haven't even... I haven't even moved through those stages. So for me to think about anything else is challenging. Uh, Do you come across that? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that can be very helpful when anyone is confronted with being overwhelmed or feeling exhausted or feeling as if too much at one time is happening is taking things by uh, bite-sized steps and making things smaller so they're more attainable versus looking at it from one big picture saying, I have to get 
all the way from here to there, that seems like so much. But if you can say, well, you just need to take this one step first, and then we'll think about the next step. It really helps to break down that sense of feeling overwhelmed and exhausted. So yes, absolutely, we run into that. Well, you know, and it's it's frightening because I speak to a lot of patients a lot of time, and they don't even think they're going to live. Mm-hmm. They're like, they're so overwhelmed, like the idea of of taking a next step. And, and you know, Kubler-Ross has the stages of shock, denial, fear, anger, depression, grief, and then finally understanding acceptance. And mm-hmm. the social worker can help them move a little bit because if you're depressed and grieving, it's hard to think that there could be another option tomorrow. And, yeah, and, absolutely. And it's, uh, yeah, it's very, very, uh, uh, the mind is a powerful thing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it really is. I'm, I, I am, uh, I definitely couldn't imagine some of the feelings that our patients go through um, upon diagnosis and throughout their dialysis journey. It's, um, it is a very daunting experience for sure. It, it, you know, looking back now, being diagnosed for many years and understanding it, I, it's taught me a lot of life lessons, but they were sure hard to learn at the time it was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so what kind of tests, what, what do you help patients get scheduled? Because I know a lot of people forget that you need like regular things done in addition to tests that the transplant center might want to perform. So you need to get mm-hmm. everything out of the way before you even make the appointment if you can. Right. Um, it's really important for the social workers to familiarize themselves with their local transplant center requirements. Um, what is a referral need to entail? And what are the tests that usually these transplant centers require prior to being considered for transplant? Um, It's really important that the social workers familiarize themselves with that. I do think, yes, there are some routine um, tests that are needed, uh, but then there's also um, ones that are not so routine that vary from transplant center to transplant center. Uh, Doctors and nurses can appropriately answer specifically what the tests are and what they mean. Um, another thing that is done like on a monthly basis are the um, the antibody tests, and we will help facilitate that in our clinics utilizing our nursing team to help with that. Well, and if you're on hemodialysis, it's wonderful because you can just do the the monthly blood draws Mm -hmm. so that they can, you know, cross-match them. And this is after they are actually listed. But, you know, one of the things I want to talk about is geographic area. Because in different parts of the country, like in Los Angeles, I have like five centers Mm -hmm. that I could choose from or six. And they all have different, like one center will take somebody with a higher BMI. One center will take, um, they're very, very good at people with high antibodies like I am. Um, Another Mm -hmm. center does a lot of paired donation. It's like you have to know the secret formula of who does what. And you know what they're what they thrive at. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, do you help patients? You know, navigate that. But in some areas of the country, there's not even a transplant center that's within right. a, in a. I mean, that's one of the big barriers. Is there 
there can be several hours or even a state away. Yeah, so absolutely the social worker helps to navigate that and helps to explain what are the flexibilities of the local transplant centers. As you said, some might be more forgiving with BMI or smoking cigarettes, whereas others might be a hard stop. And so social workers should be familiar with that, with their local transplant centers. Also, what does that mean to be referred to multiple centers? Is it beneficial? Does that give you more of a leg up on the wait list? Those are all things that social workers should be familiar with. And if you're in a state where there's one transplant center um, or there's one that's four or five hours away or even more, then the social worker can help with case management needs of if you get a call in the middle of the night, let's talk about your plan. Let's talk about who can help support get you there or a transportation option through your insurance provider, but really helping the patient plan for that for the moment a kidney is available and it's your match call. Right. Well, and, you know, because each centers have different requirements. Some of them require you have two caregivers, one is one caregiver. And and I understand they want after the transplant to make sure that you don't miss any blood draws or follow-up care. So, you, you, you mm-hmm. know, unfortunately, we talk a lot about health inequity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of inequities in transplant because of the fact that you know, I mean, I, I use the term inequity is really, you know, no money. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, sure. that, that, that's kind of my, my thought process. Like, you know, you don't have the resources to be able, even parking can be a barrier for people mm-hmm. when they're trying to make an appointment. Um, and there's no parking that, you know, like Los Angeles, it's $25 to park, mm-hmm. uh, which is, is crazy, but I can't believe I'm even saying that. So um, you have to work all those things out. Uh, one of the things I want to talk a little bit about is when the new patient enters the clinic and, you know, hopefully the nephrologist has had a conversation about is, you know, transplant an option for you. But I... I want to specify that the nephrologist is not the person who accepts a patient for kidney transplant. It's the transplant nephrologist. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So the, I mean, there's a there's a difference. The nephrologist is who is providing care for dialysis. For that's the doctor who rounds in the clinic and um, when the patients are receiving dialysis or in the home therapy clinic. That's the nephrologist. The transplant nephrologist is practicing through the transplant center. And so they're the ones who kind of help facilitate whether the patient is a candidate or not based off of multiple things, not just medical, but also psychosocial history. Um, And that's really driven by a a team of experts, uh, not necessarily just the transplant nephrologist, uh, but they are part of that team that helps decide uh, candidacy. So they are not the ones that round in the clinics. So, yeah, I just think it's really important for people to understand there's a transplant social worker that you'll meet with and a transplant doctor, and that's different from your kidney dialysis doctor and your dialysis social worker. Um, I do. I would like to talk a little bit further about just health equity and and really what you're saying, because I think health equity has to do with understanding 
and health literacy. We definitely try to help prepare our patients by teaching them, um, number one, what to expect. Number two, what questions to ask. Um, Because a lot of times our patients don't even know what questions they can or should ask uh, when they're talking to medical professionals. So helping with literacy levels uh, to increase their understanding is a big part of success in transplant. Um, And so those two things combined can help prepare a patient for things to come post-transplant, such as having to go to the transplant center for three consecutive months after your transplant, having to pay for parking, having to pay for your medication, what that looks like, how long your Medicare will cover you post-transplant. So those questions should be presented in the beginning of the transplant process to the patient to help them better understand what to expect as this journey progresses. So social workers in the dialysis clinics have access to tools and interventions to provide to these patients who might not be 100% ready and might not be 100% prepared to um, have that aftercare and all of the costs that come along with it. So we help that way. And then we also help with identifying what are some resources such as local fundraisers, leaning on your support system. Um, If you go to a church, talking to your church members, um, leaning on your insurance to determine what will they cover? Are there copay cards that are available? Medication assistance. So there's a lot of things that we can do to support the patient uh, post-transplant. One of the big things that I think is uh, it's scary for our patients is they're so used to having access to the dialysis clinic team. Um, once they're transplanted, the access to that team starts to dwindle after time because they're no longer receiving dialysis. And so preparing them for that, I don't want to say termination of relationship, <laughs> but um, the segmentation and the pause in that relationship Um, I think it's really important to prepare dialysis patients for that as well. Well, and I think, you know, you bring up an interesting point because once you're transplanted and your kidney's doing well, you no longer receive care from the dialysis facility, which is the goal. Mm -hmm. But the dialysis social worker is paid by the dialysis facility. And, you know, I, I imagine, I would hope that, you know, if you had a call, but you need to lean on the transplant social worker now. Um, mm-hmm. more than the dialysis social worker, which may or may not be available to you anymore. Um, right. I mean, I mean, you know, it's, it's really sad. And I've heard that some people don't want to get transplanted because they don't want to lose their social network of being in the dialysis facility uh, because that's their social life. Uh, have you heard that? Yes. Yes, I have. And definitely have heard that. And I think Again, that's just a really important conversation to have with the patient and their support system to prepare for that uh, because it is a shift. It is a change. Well, yeah, they they went to dialysis three times a week, not anybody's idea of a good time, but there is a social component Then once you're transplant even though you may not like the guy sitting next to you you know you're still seeing people Mm -hmm. and then you move (laughs) to transplant and when I got my fourth transplant I actually because I have a lot of animals 
And I, mm-hmm. you know, I really want to stress to people listening here, you do not have to give up your animals if you get transplanted. We have all kinds of information on our website about that. You know, due to the fact it was my fourth transplant and I was going to be highly immunosuppressed, I decided to rent an apartment and move out <laughs> of my house for six weeks. Wow. And it was hard. Yeah, I mean, I did because I wanted to... Um, I had a lot of people in my house. I didn't want to get colds. I didn't want to get sick. You know, I really, and I wanted to rest. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I wanted my body to rest. So uh, it was hard, but I was going a little crazy because I was used to all the interaction. And, you know, I watched way too much uh, Iron Chef for anybody. <laughs> but um, but it's it's, you know, you have to think ahead of time of what, works for you. And for me, also, I'm a big art and craft person. So mm-hmm. I actually bring a, a bag of art and craft supplies, whatever that project is, whenever I'm sick in the hospital, or I bring something with me because I may not use it. I may not draw or color or knit or cross stitch or paint or draw, whatever I'm doing, beading, whatever. But I like the fact that it's there because it's a coping mechanism for me if I need mm-hmm. to get my mind off of things. So you got to you gotta plan all those little things, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, 100%. Uh, well, and the other area that's a big barrier for people uh, for transplant is dental care. Mm. You need to have good chomps, chompers. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Or you need to make sure you don't have any infection in them, because if you have any infection in your mouth when you're immunosuppressed, uh, how do you how do you work around that? That people who may have, you know, dental issues, and are there resources out there for them? You know, it's hard to answer that with a blanket statement because resources are really uh, they're local, and so it's important that. The social worker informs themselves of local resources when it comes to dental needs for their patients. Um, there are some insurances that will cover certain dental procedures and some will not. So it really, really varies. There are low-cost dental programs for in towns where there's um, dental hygienist schools or dental colleges will offer extractions of cavities and things like that. So there are certain resources available, but it's really as good as the the community. You know, there are a lot of communities that don't have those resources. So what I would recommend is partnering with two other team members. One would be uh, the social worker at the transplant center, and the other would be the discharge planner at the hospital. Usually, the three, those three team members can really put their heads together to identify good resources that are reliable for patients that are in need. Uh, and once you kind of have that list, no need to reinvent the wheel, pass it on to your network and let them know these are things that you found that can help patients with dental care. Well, and, you know, it's so helpful that you give them all these questions to ask because, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of success in life is knowing what to ask, right? Yeah, <laughs> um, absolutely. And it's so true. You know, another area that I find really interesting for people listening is that, you know, I talk to them and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I've heard about kidney transplant. It doesn't work. 
Well, if you're talking to people in the waiting room of your dialysis facility, may not be the best place to get advice about transplantation working. Uh, I, and I was one of those patients that, you know, my I had two kidneys that didn't work as a young kid. And, you know, nobody tells about their success stories. They tell about their you know, oh, I had two transplants, they didn't work, and I was sick, you know, I mean, this is just natural, uh, how you tell people your story. Do you get that a lot? Your your patients are talking in the waiting room, and, you know, we kind of scare each other. Yeah, the, the power of social learning is is real, especially in a dialysis clinic, and patients who are on dialysis um, post-transplant, so they've had a failed transplant, of course, it's going to be a negative story. So the thing that's helpful in situations like this is to identify peer mentors for our patients who are interested in transplant. I mean, Lori, you're a success story. We have patients that have had transplants that have lasted 20 plus years. Um, I knew an individual who had a transplant who it lasted 27 years. I mean, there are success stories that can help keep our dialysis patients motivated. It's plugging them into those stories and not having them sit in the dialysis clinic only hearing of the negative side. Exactly. Um, so realizing access to peer mentors is so, so valuable. And transplant centers can help with that as well. Exactly. And so can RSN. I know you guys, um, I don't know if you still do, but I know that you all, um, had a peer mentor program for a while, but uh, any success story that can be shared with tran- about transplant is um, a- an optimal approach. Well, and you know, we just, um, I mean, there are tons of stories. We have George who's been transplanted like 45 years or something. Um, mm-hmm. He's amazing. There's so many incredible stories, but people have to remember a transplant is not a cure. It's another form of treatment. And that's what Mm -hmm. we try to educate people on is that, um, you know, you're going to have to take medication. Technology isn't there yet where you don't need medication. Uh, You have to do maintenance and you have to, you know, it's just another set of rules. You know, you don't drink on Mm -hmm. dialysis and you drink when you get a transplant. I mean, it's the complete opposite. I do think that, you know, those barriers can be overcome because success rates way over like 96 or 97 percent, depending mm-hmm. on the center. I mean, that's that's phenomenal. But when you're that one or two or three percent, it sucks, <laughs> you know, that, right. that when something happens. So now do you help your patients talk about living donation to their friends and family? Because, you know, yeah. that's the best way to get a kidney transplant and you're not called in the middle of the night, it's planned. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think for dialysis providers, anyone who's in nephrology, we know that living donation is the optimal outcome uh, when it comes to transplant. The wait list is less and the actual rate of getting it completed takes a lot less time. So we definitely educate about living donation. I think one of the challenges that our patients face is how do I ask for someone's kidney? How do I do that? So that's mm-hmm. one of the things that we're working on is helping to empower our social workers and the rest of our team to understand what does that conversation look like? And 
really trying to help the patient navigate those conversations to success. Um, and so we educate our teams on living donation, and in turn, they educate our patients on living donation. You know, we created this little kit called Share Your Spare Kit, <laughs> and the Share Your Spare Kit is really helpful in making the conversation a little easier because it has two little educational booklets. You put it on the table, and you you know, pick it up and read the little booklet, like Neff and Nuff are in it because one is enough. You don't need two kidneys. You can donate one. And it starts the conversation with stuffed toys. And it helps make the conversation a little bit easier. And mm-hmm. we have a lot of information on our website about how to ask for a kidney. And the best way is for somebody else to ask for you. Uh, uh, this has been proven over and over again. Like if a family member would, hey, you know, can you help? And then the other way is to just share your story and let people Mm -hmm. know about it. Because um, I love the story by my one friend. Um, I'm like, how did you get a kidney? And she goes, oh, my neighbor knocked on the door and wanted, offered me (laughs) one of their kidneys. I mean, you know, you just never know Mm. how your transplant will come if you put mm-hmm. the word out. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> it, it is. It's quite phenomenal and just that people are offering the gift of life. Um, also, they have now exchanges that are out there. So if you have somebody that, you know, wants to donate to you, but you've been told they're not a match, they can in turn donate their kidney to somebody else, then you get a kidney. So there's a mm-hmm. lot of different ways that living donation is working. Um, and then, of course, deceased donors, which is, you know, the majority of the transplants. I'd like to talk a little bit about the wait list because the wait list is interesting that it's changed over the years because the day you start dialysis is when time accrues, right? Can you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that so people understand it? Sure. So we do like to try to get our newer patients referred as soon as possible just to go ahead and get them through the process if, if we can, if they're interested and they're ready. But let's say that we have a patient who's not ready or they're not yet interested we can pause on that referral. We can, the patient can take their time. The social worker and the rest of the team can continue to educate, provide support about the discussion of transplant and um, determining if the patient is ready. And when they are, uh, we can refer them. That referral starts the process of going through evaluation. And let's say that they get placed on the wait list, but they've been on dialysis for three years or maybe 10 years. They, they had to wait a while to get interested and ready. The wait list links actually goes all the way back to that first date of dialysis. Um, and so the patient has accrued a significant more amount of time, whereas it used to start as soon as the patient was placed on the wait list. But now there's a look back, which is been wonderful for so many of our patients because they the time on the wait list increased massively when that rule changed. Um, so it actually starts when the patient is waitlisted all the way back to the first date of dialysis. It's added on to that. 
Well, and it's, you know, it, it happens a lot because there's some centers, they're so busy right now that you may not get a referral for three months to even get in. Mm-hmm. I mean, to see somebody, I mean, the wait times are just to see the tra- to, to make an appointment can be long. So, and I always tell people, you know, people always ask me, you had two transplants that didn't work. My third one lasted 20 years. My fourth one's been 12 years. And people have asked me, it is amazing. Mm -hmm. And people have asked me, like, why did you, you know, you had two failed transplants and why did you go for a third one? And they never worked. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I never really had any freedom off of dialysis. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, I was born in Las Vegas and I realized that dialysis was always waiting for me, but a transplant wasn't. And if I mm-hmm. had the opportunity to get one, I was going to do it. I was going to go for it. And it paid off the third time, 20 years. I mean, it's amazing. And then, you know, it's never fun to hear that the kidney's puttering out, but to get a mm-hmm. fourth one. And that one is the best kidney I've ever had ever. This, The one I have currently, I bet you my labs are better than yours. <laughs> which is quite remarkable when you think about it you know you have to be a little bit of a risk taker it's hard to give up control and go into surgery you know like for uh because a transplant is an elective surgery you don't have to have it it's a gift so the other thing that is really brought to my attention later, RSN created this transplant dashboard that we took all the data from some of the government bodies that collected and pulled it into an easy form where you can find out where your closest transplant center is, how many transplants they do, how many um, living transplants they do, different things that a group of us thought was important to not overwhelm people but keep people informed. And there's about 100,000 people on the kidney transplant list. But what's really concerning to me is about 40% of them are not active on the list. And, you know, maybe we can talk a little bit why people can be inactive and what patients need to do to be their own advocate. Because, you know, if you're inactive, you're not going to get a call. Sure. I have dived deep into that topic myself. There are multiple reasons that a patient could be uh, listed as inactive. One on the on the back end is let's say that they've been waitlisted and then they're moved to inactive status. Um, that can happen for a plethora of reasons that can be from change in medical status to a, a, a new diagnosis to something that is prohibiting their ability to be successful with a transplant, with a new kidney. There are three that stand out to me, to be honest. One is the transplant center tried to contact the patient to let them know that there was a a kidney available and they weren't able to contact. So they'll change their status to inactive with the label unable to contact. That's that's something that we can partner with our transplant centers and patients on to prevent from happening because the trans the dialysis clinics have access to the patients. We one hundred percent. I mean, well, heck, maybe ninety nine percent of the time have the most current contact information for the patient. We can call them, text them, email, whatever it is. So if the transplant center can't contact, please let us know. Another one is other, and that's kind of, it captures everything. It can be from 
um, the transplant center hears of uh, maybe a lapse in um, sobriety or adherence issues or a change in medical status to include something like a, a dementia diagnosis or if something has changed significantly. And then the final one is patient refused. And that's another one that we need to make sure that we're partnering with our patients to make sure they feel supported and ready for transplant. So those are the things on the back end. But on the front end, let's say the patient has not yet been waitlisted. Transplant centers do have the option if the patient de is deemed an appropriate candidate. Like everything looks good on paper, but maybe there's a few tests that are left to happen. They can go ahead and label the patient as inactive waitlist um, just to go ahead and get them started. They can do that, and it, it has to do with things like uh, EPTS score and port score, all these doctor phrases that I don't need to get into as a social worker. But the, the transplant center can label the patient as inactive on the wait list. So that's on the front end. And then once they get all of their testing done, then the patient can be active. So there's a variety of reasons why a patient can be listed as inactive. Well, you know, and it's an interesting point because, you know, people, we, we have this happen at RSN all the time. Like, you know, they win our essay contest and, you know, they moved and they didn't tell us. And, they, well, we never got the check. Well, you moved. <laughs> I mean, you know what I'm yeah. saying? And, and yeah. it's like they need to realize they need to communicate because um, it's their own health that suffers. And, yeah. you know, always keep your phone number updated and, and ways to connect with people. For my third transplant, I went camping in the mountains above Los Angeles. And before I walked out the door, I put on a note where I would be. This was pre-cell phones. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's how they found me. Oh, wow. Well, that's quite the story. You know, literally, because my, my grandma was <laughs> taking care of my dog. Mm-hmm. And she came over, and you know what I'm saying? Like, she was the backup number. You know, my family were the backup number because cell phones weren't all that plentiful back in. Uh, they weren't even existing in 1990. Mm -hmm. But the ranger station got a hold of me. And that's how I got my third kidney. I mean, it's quite amazing that, you know, everything had to line up or I would have lost a perfect match kidney. I got a six-antigen match kidney that I could have lost if I didn't have contact information. Wow. So um, it's really important that people be aware of that. You know, the next thing you brought upon was adherence. You know, so people are like, oh, I'm going to skip dialysis today. Uh, I don't yeah. need dialysis. Well, that relates to the transplant team that you could skip your medicine. And mm -hmm. they don't want to give a good organ that there's a wait list for that somebody donated to give the gift of life and give it to somebody who's going to be careless about their care. That's how they view it, right? They just aren't going to do mm -hmm. it. There's too much of a need. I, I really think that adherence, um, it can be a sensitive topic and it can be very subjective. So it's really important to communicate and collaborate with the patient the transplant center and the dialysis clinic to identify was there a life change that recently happened to cause the patient to miss a few treatments versus blatant disregard for right. needing to go to treatment. So it's really important to define that 
when they're discussing adherence. And I think um, for, for patients, it's really important that they know life changes are accepted. You know, your, your child loses their daycare or you lose the use of your car. So transportation becomes an issue. That's okay. That, that's absolutely fine. We just need to be able to know that that's what, what's happening. And so does the transplant, transplant center. So you're not removed from the wait list. It's really important that we're just honest and open. Um, so everyone knows that that's the issue and it's, it's a quick issue. Um, so I think adherence is an important topic. Well, and, you know, the next issue is is when a person is ill and has an infection or their medical status changes. Mm-hmm. Do you know if if somebody's admitted to a hospital um, for an infection, is the transplant center notified? You know, what is that mechanism? Um, mm-hmm. or, or, you know, they were in for a week, they're out, no harm, no foul. You know, how do they know if they're active? That's, I guess that's an interesting question. You know, how can the patient actually know? Uh, can they ask you and you could find out the social worker? Yeah, so complicated question. I think the answer to your first question is, um, do the transplant centers know about hospitalization? That's determined based off of the uh, medical record keeping system that they use. So they might, um, they might not. They might not use the same system that that hospital uses. So it really depends. Um, and that's where collaboration comes in with transplant centers and dialysis clinics and patients. And then the the second question was, how do they know that they're waitlisted? Well, whenever a patient is placed on the waitlist, the transplant center mails a letter to the patient and to the dialysis clinic. Um, the clinics upload that into their system. They have it in the patient's record. And then they also, uh, the patient should have a copy of that letter as well. So everyone kind of learns at the same time that they are active. And they have their blood drawn every month, correct? Is that still the protocol? Because if you're not getting your blood drawn every month, you're probably not active. <laughs> Yes, they do get their um, they do get their antibody uh, test every month. So that would be, I mean, that would, I mean, not that you want to be off a month, but if if you're listening out there and nobody's saying, "Hey, I need your antibody," or when, or ask your nurse, "When is my antibody blood test being drawn for transplant?" And then if she comes back and says it's not ordered because you're not on the wait list, then you know you need to get move in <laughs> and figure out yeah, why. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's a good point. Yeah. It's either something has happened with your waitlist status or the, the dialysis clinic has overlooked that need. So that's a really important point. <laughs> you know, it is because it's like my idea of a horrible time is being on hold. <laughs> that's why I'm like, I'm like, please don't give me the hold music or wherever you're trying to find information. <laughs> Um, so if there's certain little cues that you can look for that can give you answers. Um, and then I do want to highly suggest that everybody get access to their medical information through their portal because, you know, I don't like remembering all the passwords. Uh, it can get a little daunting in all the different sites for all the different, mm-hmm. you know, healthcare entities. <laughs> but what's wonderful about it is I can email my doctor in the middle of the night when something comes to mind that I'm not sure about, instead of saying, oh, well, call in the morning. 
and that's use that you know because you can email uh, I'm on the Cedar Sinai system and I can email my transplant team in the middle of the night if I want and ask mm-hmm. a question and and you know utilize that that's the best best you know because it's in writing it's not like trying to leave a message and call people it's a, a yeah. good use of time yeah absolutely <laughs> Well, That's a um, great idea. it's, you know, where technology is helpful, but it's also, um, I like to talk to a live person, but I want that mm-hmm. live person to be knowledgeable. So, you know, you, you have to, you have to, you know, figure out what's your best option. Um, well, mm-hmm. you know, this has been very helpful, Anna. Um, anything else you think we left out about, you know, preparing to, you know, find out about transplant, leaning on your dialysis social worker so that you can, you know, get the gift of life if you choose. I I think it's important that our patients and all of the interdisciplinary team know that transplant is a, it's a complex process and navigating that system is really challenging and, and remembering that you're not alone and not to do it alone, to Lean on your resources, lean on your support network, ask questions. Um, and if you don't get answers, ask someone else. There, there are people there that, there are people out there that know the answers to what you're looking for. So, um, just making sure that you don't try to navigate this a hundred percent on your own. And, and I mean that for the social workers too. There are resources out there. There's information out there and there are teams out there. Um, that can help support this process. So everybody um, is on board and everyone knows that if this is the patient's chosen outcome, it is the optimal outcome. Uh, And there are a lot of people out there to support this. It it really is. And, you know, uh, RSN has a number of support groups that you can come and just talk to other people who've navigated in real time and, you know, are being successful and, you know, can help support some of those fears that you may have because, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's one day at a time when you're going for a transplant. And if you lean on all your support team and, just tackle it like a project. You'll be uh, like, I. Uh, this is a kidney joke, but I'm like, and soon you'll be peeing all you can pee. I mean, that's, <laughs> that, you know, it's, it's really strange, but you know, you I didn't urinate for 12 years. So I get very excited about, you know, talking about that. Mm-hmm. And it's such a gift. I mean, health care and innovation over the years of of what they can do to help us live better lives is inspiring. Yeah, absolutely. We might as well take advantage of it and be informed and figure out the best option and not let fear stand in our way. Yeah. Well, thank you, Anna, so much for being here today. And I always appreciate social workers and anybody in the uh, the care continuum that helps us emotionally prepare because it's all about our feelings um, uh, for us to be successful. So we have to have hope. Thank you so much, Lori. I really appreciate you letting me talk about this really important topic. I, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network. Please make sure to find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at rsnhope.org. Kidney Talk is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own health care provider regarding your medical condition.